Well, welcome to our 22nd interview on Ideas and Lives. Um, Tzvi Bodhi and I are co-hosts. Tzvi is a financial economist. Tzvi, introduce yes. yourself. And Bob is a uh, policy guy. And we are interviewing a policy gal. Uh, her name is Alaire Townsend. Um, she was my boss uh, a few years ago. <laughs> oh, my God. And um, she's gone on way beyond her role as staff director of the Joint Economic Committee's Subcommittee on Fiscal Policy to an amazing career. And uh, we're delighted to have you there. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be with you, especially after all these years. Absolutely. 50 years is a long time. You right. Know. Well, um, you, you directed a great, uh, a great project there, uh, which we, we like to think it put you on your uh, way to all the other big positions that you've had over the years. But um, let's, let's begin at the beginning and um, let's hear about, you know, your upbringing, going to high school. Uh, In Elmira, New York. Where you came from and uh, yeah. how you got into college. Where is Elmira? Elmira is um, about 225 miles in a lifetime away from New York City. And I was born in Rochester, New York, and then uh, stopped in Ohio. And then we moved to Elmira when I was about five years old. And it was a very nice place to grow up. We had horses, it was very nice. And uh, it never occurred to me, however, that I would live there for the rest of my life. I thought perhaps I could fly. And I wanted to see how strong my wings were and how far they might take me. So especially toward the end of my time in Elmira, I was really eager to get out into that big world. And- uh, But you stayed in Elmira for college. I did. Uh, I stayed in the dorm for the first two years. Um, Junior year was at the London School of Economics. And then I came home and to have more freedom than would happen in the dorms, I stayed at home with a college roommate. And then I went to the University of Wisconsin for graduate work. And that was, that was very nice. I do remember at the time <coughs> I had earned a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship which was very nice. And I was greeted by one of my fellow graduate students, a fellow who allowed us how it was really a shame to waste that Woodrow Wilson on me because everybody knew that a woman would just get married, have kids, and that was the end of her productive Oh my life. God. And I even had faculty members tell me as I was leaving two years later that they, that they knew they had underestimated me. I, um, I 
wore lipstick and I combed my hair. And that was not a signal of intellectual <laughs> rigor. <laughs> but anyway, it all ended okay. And who were oh, some it, of your uh, professors there that you may have stayed in touch with because uh, Wisconsin created the Institute for Research on Poverty? Yeah, well, I knew um, um, Haverman and, um, oh, geez, they're skipping my mind now. Can you remember some of the big names? Um, what, what field Hauser. were you studying? Watts, Robert Harold Watts. Harold Watts, yeah. Mm -hmm. What were Robert you studying? What were you political science or English no. or what? What was I studying? Yes. Oh, sociology. 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 Okay. And they they had at the time a pretty quantitative uh, sociology group. I know yeah. David Featherman and Rob Hauser were among them. Mm -hmm. Um, so you graduated uh, or you finished your master's there? I did. I did my master's. My father had uh, just died. There were three younger kids at home and I wanted to be somewhere on the East Coast where I could get home easily to uh, kind of be there when needed. So I saw an ad in the American Journal of Sociology for a job at uh, what was then the US Department of Health, Education and Welfare. It was a GS9. It paid what seemed like a magnificent sum at the time, $7,220. And I was thrilled beyond measure when I got the job. And the job largely consisted of updating a biannual report that was then being put out called Statistics on Institutions Serving Delinquent Children. And as I was trying to collate and summarize the information on the forms, I noted that in a number of states, all South, uh, there were two of everything, two for bad boys, two for bad girls. And so I started looking more closely and you know, it was really easy to figure out which ones were for the black bad boys and which ones were for the white bad girls. The resource differential, <coughs> excuse me, was stunning. And so I made note of that fact, which amazingly had just not occurred apparently to anybody who did that report before me, or maybe they were discouraged from noting it. <laughs> so so that was, was that uh, during the Johnson administration or? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I guess it would have been. That was, yeah. that was about in 64, 65. Well, those, yeah, those were the heady days of the new, the new front. Uh, so did anything know, come society. of, did anything come of you're noting the disparity and no, not that I ever knew. You know, uh, a little report is not going to change those institutions and all of the 
political power behind keeping them the way they were, but at least somebody made note of it. Well, you subsequently, didn't you go to work for a congressman, congresswoman? Um, Griffiths. Martha Griffiths. W. Griffiths. Right. Martha. So was civil rights one of her things that she fought for? Um, um, civil rights in the sense of women's equality. Women. She got the Equal Rights Amendment through the Oh, that's right. Twice. And as I mentioned already, when she was in the Congress, there were just a handful of women in the House, and a number of them were the widows, people like uh, Lindy Boggs, uh, the widow of Hale Boggs, uh, and they just kind of acceded to their late husband's spots. Um, that was not the case for- So what, what was- so you, you went on to become staff director of a subcommittee project. What was the genesis of that project? How did it, yeah. and did it start before she hired you? Uh, no, Mrs. Griffiths was on the Ways and Means Committee as well. And she had a sense of a lot of various income maintenance programs, cash, and in kind that were being formulated and funding increased to help low-income people. But she thought also uh, that nobody was adding them all together and nobody was saying, well, if somebody received all these benefit packages cumulatively, what could the benefits amount to? And if they took a job, what would happen to those benefits? How much would you lose if you took a job? Sometimes it was more than a dollar. So she, uh, and we're talking here about cash, public assistance, welfare, as it's called, food stamps, uh, Medicaid, which is typically an all or nothing phenomenon. You're either totally on Medicaid because you get a dollar of public assistance or you're not. Um, public housing, subsidized daycare. Uh, there was really a very long list of programs. And working with Bob and people like John Goldstein and Irene Cox and Jim Story, uh, we set out to show uh, what the cumulative impact of these programs was. One of the first studies was uh, done by the GAO, General Accounting Office, it's got a new name now, and they pulled samples from a variety of cities <coughs> and uh, <clears throat> actually looked at how much person A and B and C uh, got in terms of benefits. They added them up. Uh, and that was uh, kind of pathbreaking. Nobody had ever done that before. It was a, and it was a big effort, as you can imagine, to do a survey on that. Scale. But she must have gotten some allocation from uh, the full committee to be able to fund us. <laughs> yes. Well, she was also on the Joint Economic Committee. And so she first went to the powers that be 
which included uh, William Proxmire, Senator William Proxmire from Wisconsin then, and uh, said, would you support me? I would like to get a special congressional funding for, to do a study of this. And, um, and Prox said yes. So then she had to go to the Appropriations Committee and she got the money. And she got a, uh, she got, I think, a two-year funding, and then she got a third year. Um, and, and as she said, people didn't come to Washington to work on welfare. They came to meet a better class of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that was unfortunately true. So you didn't have very many people who were interested in looking at the details of the specifics of these particular programs. And um, she, she knew how to sell. And she, in, she said, you have to tell stories because people can reconstruct the point you're trying to make, the principle, by remembering the story. So she right. invented a family called the Nodos, D-O-E-S. No dose, little Johnny no dose. So she, she would, you have two minute uh, speeches on the house floor for any reason. And so she would do little John, stories of little Johnny no dose and his family. And in one, she had the auntie of little Johnny no dose saying to Johnny's mother, Take good care of little Johnny. You know how much he means to you. <laughs> and, how much he's worth. And so she would tell people uh, that she was going to have a no-do story. And they would all come in and line up like birds on a phone wire to listen to her story. Uh, she had a lot of credibility with the Congress because she did her story. And she got the... ERA through twice, which is no mean feat, um, and they trusted her, and so that was really fun. Working. How long did she uh, last as a representative? She retired in '74, um, I think it was. Her husband, who stayed behind uh, just outside of Detroit, um, had uh, had had health problems. And as she told me, she didn't want to hang around uh, the house while her husband died. So she went back to Michigan and then she became Lieutenant Governor of Michigan and uh, made a name for herself there. She also tried to hire me as Michigan's budget director, but I declined. Was that now, later when you, were, when you were in New York City? Yes, I think I was here by that time. Alair, um, I, I have a question about, uh, so at the end of this uh, project uh, involving studies in public welfare, um, we came up with a couple of plans for reform. Uh, the plan that uh, you uh, uh, were in charge of with Jim Story. Uh, what happened to that plan? Uh, did you present it? I, I, 
I was out of the country by then, but what what actually took place? Well, we got a lot of press on it. Mrs. Griffiths uh, had a couple of press conferences announcing it. <clears throat> and um, Nixon, as you remember, had um, had a welfare plan for families called the Family Assistance Plan, FAP. Yeah. And FAP was in many ways modeled on this, this proposal of ours, but FAP um, didn't make it through the Congress. It was a classic case of being too much in the middle. The liberals didn't like it because it didn't set a high enough threshold for paying families and the conservatives hated it because they didn't want to give poor people anything. So there, there wasn't enough in the middle to hold the thing together. Was, um, this, was this the plan that Moynihan was championing yes, in the uh, Senate? Yes, he was yeah. pushing it. And interestingly, I think when uh, last year, I think it was, they they... Congress passed because uh, the president proposed the child tax credit. This was an amazing plan, which did so much to reduce family poverty, childhood poverty, and uh, that it was not extent extended is really very sad. Yeah, well, um... Just as a footnote, I uh, had worked on the jobs approach and uh, Jimmy Carter proposed something similar. Uh, again, um, the uh, conservatives didn't like the job creation component because they thought it was more expensive than just sending checks. The Democrats didn't like the jobs component because they were worried that the people getting those jobs would uh, take the jobs of high-paid union janitors That's and right. other uh, other people in cities, and uh, so that one uh, didn't didn't end up uh, uh, becoming law either. That was the better jobs and income plan. Absolutely, yes. Yep. So um, at that point, you uh, you had finished your work. For the subcommittee. Um, from there, where did you go? Well, it was a very interesting time because the Congress had just passed the uh, con the Budget Control and Impoundment Act because of a constitutional crisis between the president and the Congress over the power of the purse. Congress says, if we appropriate it, you have to spend it because we've got the power of the purse. And the president said, but you're so irresponsible. You never add up like I have to do with my budget, everything you want to spend. Uh, and so we only know what your priorities are uh, and what you want the fiscal policy to be at the end of the year when it's all over. Uh, and so the that act established three new entities. One, the Congressional Budget Office. Two and three, House and Senate Budget Committees. And coming out of the subcommittee, I had been really eager to work for the House Ways and Means Committee. 
to have my hands on the welfare laws and social security and unemployment insurance. And at that point, Medicaid, Medicare. Uh, so I had really set my arrow aiming at ways and means. But I also got offers from the House and the Senate uh, budget committees. And um, Bob, you, you'll appreciate this. I had an interview uh, at the Ways and Means Committee and um, the guy said, now I understand your husband works for the Urban League. And I said, no, he doesn't work for the Urban League. He works for the Urban Institute, which is a nonprofit think tank, nonpartisan. Oh, he was really relieved. Isn't that awful? <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, in the end, I decided to go with a house. I was more a house than a Senate side person. I just felt it in my bones. And I thought that my role at house budget would have, would be far broader, covering far more territory. I had basically under my purview, all the domestic uh, pro programs, except for housing. And that was kind of irresistible. So I went as a senior person to the House Budget Committee. And, um, and that was very interesting. It was, we had to basically invent new processes for how to implement this new law. Who and was your chair? It Who was the chair? The first one was Oh, it was Al Allman. Al Allman hired me, but then he quickly moved to the Ways and Means Committee. Do we remember why? Well, tell everyone why. Yeah, I well, Wilbur Mills, who was then the chairman of Ways and Means, took and a very powerful. the title title. I remember that, yeah. Argentine firecracker, Fanny Fox. <laughs> Mrs. <laughs> Griffith said to me, and to think, we all used to think he just studied the tax code at night. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the first chairman was, hmm, it wasn't Bob Jimo, might have been B Brock Adams yeah. from Washington State. So, so that was interesting. All the other committees hated us because we infringed on their existing power to one degree or another. So we had to learn to walk around that. Now, when did you move into uh, the Ed Koch administration? Well, um, Joe Califano was then Secretary of Health and Human Services. And he hired me away from budget to be the deputy assistant secretary for budget. I did that. Then he left and Patricia Roberts Harris became the secretary. And uh, she promoted me to assistant secretary for management and budget of the department. And that was really important because that was the highest <coughs> 
nonpartisan job, basically in government. <clears throat> Higher than that, you couldn't go without being overtly a, a political appointee. Um, so I was sworn in the day before the Carter-Reagan election. And I looked around this immense office which had my own bathroom, my own conference room, phones hanging from every fixture you can imagine, and said, don't get too used to this, toots. And I didn't because uh, I, it would, turned out to be a short tenure. Well, the, the Reaganauts were nice to me. They didn't say, we don't ever want to see you again. They made me uh, uh, a deputy assistant secretary at um, um, the public health service. So it was a very nice job. It was just not a place I particularly wanted to be. And at that time, Ed Koch needed a budget director. He wasn't liking the candidates. So he put together a group of three businessmen. One knew me from Washington. And so um, I, I got the job. Uh, they called me. I was off. I had taken a week off on a Monday and said, um, could you please send your resume? And then they called me on Friday and said, we didn't get your resume. And I said, I didn't send it. And that was because I was, I was really scared, basically, New York politics, and oh my God. So they said, well, can you come up Monday anyway and bring your resume with you? I said, yes, I can do that. So I went up and I had uh, a whole packed day of interviews with everybody. And I went home, I was convinced I didn't get it. And they called me the next day to schedule a return visit. And I said to the nice lady, Carol Zwick, come back. I didn't think it went that well. I'm not coming back to fulfill any affirmative action interview quotas. I'll check with my sources to find out if this is serious. You check with yours. Boom. <laughs> and I, after I hung up, I said, what's wrong with me? What happened to me? This is not me. This is like a New Yorker. This is chutzpah. We call that chutzpah. Yes, that's it. It took so little time. And so they called me back the next day and said, um, yes, it's serious. And my sources said, said it's down to me and one other guy. And I got the lead. So I said, very politely, yes, thank you. I would be delighted to come back. And so I did. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know anything really about New York. So when I was a kid, at the breakfast table over Cheerios, my mother made flashcards for multiplication so I could be a child prodigy at multiplication. So, you know, seven times 856, mother, you can't fool me in any of that stuff. And so I made my own flashcards. Cute, comma, Thomas, turn it over. 
president, city council. Okay. So I made a, a bunch of them. And everywhere I went, I carried my flashcards with me. Uh, and I studied maps. Where is that Coney Island? <laughs> I know it's here somewhere. <laughs> uh, and, and it was just fun getting, getting to know the city. And I was so thrilled. I just loved it. You know, I loved, I loved working in Washington, especially on things like welfare reform, where if you, if you can get it done, you have affected millions of people. In New York, you, it's smaller bore, but you, <coughs> I'm sorry, you have the immediacy. When I was budget director, we had some lean years and we would have to cut the sanitation department, street cleaning. So I could see in my own neighborhood, streets getting cleaner and streets getting dirtier. I could see in my own neighborhood, more or fewer police on the street. So you felt so accountable and like what, what you were doing, the, the priorities you were laying down had real world consequences for every single New Yorker. And I loved that about the job. And I loved working for Ed Koch, who was so smart and so funny. And so he was funny in real life. Oh, he uh, was he was wonderful. Yes, he was. And unlike Rudy Giuliani, for example, who hated Bill Bratton because the police commissioner, because he was getting a lot of personal publicity. Ed loved it when his top people uh, got nice editorials in the Times or got written up somewhere. He thought it reflected well on him. He was like a proud papa. And he was very good about giving you um, responsibility along with accountability. So you knew how long your leash was and he, he just didn't tug on it for no reason. He would back uh, you up if there was a <coughs> Absolutely. controversy? Absolutely. Can you tell I us any stories that might relate to any of that? Um, well, I, <laughs> homelessness bedeviled him uh, and a local reporter, TV reporter, Gabe Bressman, was always in his face about homelessness. And um, so, one day Ed was visiting a homeless shelter and there he found a young fellow. He kind of looked like he just was an average Joe, not a bum. And he was maybe 20, 21. And Ed said, well, where are you from? And the kid said, oh, I'm, you know, like he named someplace in the suburbs. And Ed said, really? He said, well, do you fight with your parents? No, no. And he said, well, well, why are you here? Why aren't you home with them? And the kid says, please, Mayor, I'm old enough to take care of myself. <laughs> <laughs> In a homeless shelter. 
<laughs> and one time, uh, shortly after I moved over to City Hall as deputy mayor, uh, I went with him to the opening of a vertical mall. We hadn't had a vertical mall in New York City. So one of the features of the vertical mall on one of the upper floors was a carousel, a merry-go-round. So of course, if you got the mayor there, you got to get the mayor on the damn merry-go-round. So Ed is on the merry-go-round. <laughs> And when he got off and we were leaving, I said, hey, Ed, did you like that ride? He said, see, Alir, child-like, not childish. <laughs> he was, he was. I was in, I, I worked uh, in Wall, on Wall Street for a couple of years and belonged to a gym. Uh, and who should I meet in the gym? This was after Ed was mayor already, but Ed Koch, and he was going to the gym every day. Yes, he was. Yeah, Ed keeping in shape, very friendly. Yep. When he first got to City Hall, um, he, well, he forever there, he, he would have uh, coffee in the morning on China cups, and occasionally he would have a couple of people for lunch, and the dirty dishes were stacking up in the sink. And he says to one of his aides, who does the dishes around here? All the cleaning ladies decided they didn't do dishes. <laughs> uh, he, he had to disabuse them. Of that notion. <laughs> <laughs> Were they <Yeah>. unionized? <laughs> uh, oh, everybody was unionized. Yeah. In fact, did you have to uh, engage in uh, the union bargaining? Obviously, would have budgetary implications. Yes. Uh, yeah. What What was your role there, if any, either as budget well, director or deputy yeah. mayor? First of all, when they finally reached a whatever they were going to do, uh, I had to fund the damn things. And uh, I never, ever had sucked away enough because it, it was just hard. First of all, it was hard to hide that much money. Back in the day there, um, it just the CPI. So you weren't consulted about well, sure, what I agreement thought. they could make or what? <laughs> Sure, I thought everybody except me should work for free. <laughs> but that was not the prevailing wisdom. So uh, I would be hauled by the our labor negotiators over at, at meetings with union presidents to uh, tell them the sorry news that there was very little money. In fact, in one of these... Um, uh, I was just starting my spiel when a guy called Phil Selig, who was then the president of the Correction Officers Association, he decided to stand up very slowly and take off his jacket, revealing a gigantic gun in the holster. 
become available but you know they they love to do whatever they could he, mu he must have been from texas <laughs> when victor Gottbaum, who was pretty famous he he would refer to me as miss hard rocks <laughs> so how so, long did you how long did you do that i was budget director for three and a half years and every year we had a surplus of at least a half a billion dollars. It was probably the same money just rolling through, but I was not going to be the budget director that didn't have a balanced budget. No way, Jose. That was just not going to happen. So you learn to budget very conservatively. You overestimate spending and underestimate revenues. And it served us all very well. And so after three and a half years, Ed moved me over to City Hall as Deputy Mayor for Finance and Economic Development. And how long did you stay at that job? Four. Four well, years. Four years. So, mm -hmm. so you were top executive in the city for almost eight years. Yeah. And, did and you what were some any, of the highlights of the economic development? Yeah, did you get any bridges to name or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't you know the other to Townsend Bridge? <laughs> you haven't been on that bridge? <laughs> um, yeah, it's in the Bronx, right? <laughs> yeah, no thanks. Um, yeah, I came... Uh, I came into office at a time when the Reaganites had just proposed to eliminate the deductibility of state and local taxes. You can't be an official in New York City and not think that that is really cataclysmic for New York and for other high tax, high service states. So um, Charlie Rangel from New York City at that point was senior on Ways and Means, which would have been the Committee of Jurisdiction. <clears throat> and he said that he, he wasn't understanding what the big deal was if we lost state and, and local deductibility. Wow. So one weekend, Robert, my then husband was out of town. I brought home a bunch of material and I said, I got to write that memo that convinces him. So I started out on the Friday night and literally I'd wake up in the middle of the night, make a note on a piece of paper on the nightstand because my mind was working on this all weekend, uh, dead or alive, sleep or awake. And so by the end of it, I had a good product. I was proud of it. And it made the point um, just a million times over. He got the menu memo. <coughs> he said he found religion. And we organized <coughs> with the help of the business community, especially including Lou Rudin at that point, um, a strategy to lobby um, across all the states, pick up support from other states who would uh, be disadvantaged if we lost that. And uh, with Charlie's help, we won. That went away. It came back again, as you know. 
And right. Charlie was now retired from Congress. And um, and no nobody really seemed to just get alerted and activated and, and make a big deal about it. So we lost it and that is a shame. So one of the things I'm proud of, about is, is helping to organize and lead that effort and to get Charlie Wrangle on board with saving it um, back in 19, I guess it was 85. And the other thing was we were losing uh, jobs manufacturing, but especially back office jobs like crazy, um, especially in financial services. And, you know, those jobs are hard to come by and they pay well. So what could we do? So you could hire a consultant on your own recognizance, not have it go through the board of estimate or the city council. So I hired for $9,900 a relocation <coughs> consultant, and I gave them the parameters for a couple of different kinds of operations, a printer, a back office operation, like four of these. And I specified exactly for each one of these kinds of operations, how many employees, um, whatever this person would need to figure to be able to compare operating costs. And from that, we got a very clear picture of exactly where we were uncompetitive. Basically we knew, but this would convince any doubters. It was of course the uh, corporate income tax, the commercial occupancy tax, energy costs, uh, real estate taxes. So now we had something solid to put our foot against and say, okay, what are we going to do about this? So we had, we established an energy cost savings program that cut your bill by 30%. If you were moving to the four other boroughs than Manhattan or Manhattan north of 96th Street, or if you were already in those places, you were investing a certain amount in rehabbing your facilities. So that's energy, that was done. And associated with the uh, renovation costs, we worked in some nice real estate tax savings for 30 years. Also for the same kinds of companies located where they were. We also for companies in those areas, uh, moving or expanding, we, no, they didn't even have to move. We were eliminating the commercial occupancy tax, which at that point was a tax of 6% on your rent, basically, just for the privilege of being able to rent space rent in, New York. in New York City. And then on the general corporation tax fund, um, we, you got a corporate tax credit of, I think it was originally, it went up over time, a thousand or might've been 3000 per relocating employee. 
So you put all that together and we were able to save 6,000 jobs that Chase was thinking about moving to New Jersey. And um, we saved a lot of other companies and rewarded still others for basically reinvesting in New York City. And for those, for, for a number of years, job growth in the boroughs exceeded job growth in Manhattan. And that made me very happy because I hated the idea of a glittering core surrounded by just bedrooms and no jobs. And this way I thought kids will be able to look out in their neighborhoods and see people going to work there, see hope there. And, uh, and I liked that. So that was, some, I spent a lot of time on that, chasing the moving vans. I got tire treads on my back. <laughs> well, then, at that point, um, you, uh, you had done your work for the city and what you were thinking, maybe it's time to take well, a private sector publishing. Yeah. Private sector job and uh, yeah. tell us about becoming the publisher of Cranes. Well, this... it's kind of hard to look for a job under the nose, literally, of Ed Koch. My office was directly adjacent to his. Um, so one day the publisher of Cranes came to me and said, would you ever be interested in my job? I'm going, I want to go back to Chicago soon. And I said, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Because my ideal job was to make something, to run a manufacturing plant. Because after all these years of process, with a thousand or a million people having their fingers, you know, in every pie, right. I just thought it would be really nice to produce product and I thought well you know it's not a widget but it is a product every week Crane's New York business so I said yes I sure would so a couple of months later she came back and said uh, okay we're going to talk earnestly about this job uh, we we want you you're the only one oh I said that's great let's do it <coughs> But if I do it, I said, it has to be quick. I don't want to leave Ed um, in the year in which he's running for re-election. So we got to do it before January of that year, at least announce it. So I don't seem to be abandoning him. He was ready, running for a fourth term. He didn't win. Um, and so I started. And uh, my husband had said to me, you want to write a column? And I said, well, that's very interesting. How do I tell the editor that? I don't know. You're so, the publisher. <laughs> I know, I know. But, you know, um, <coughs> editors guard their privileges. So the first day on the job, <clears throat> I gave uh, the editor two or three page single space type memo with story ideas. I just, I said, here, make of them what you will. He looked them over and he said, I like them. Oh, well, that's good. So then he said, and we think you should write a column. I said, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. 
okay. <laughs> and, you know, that turned out really to be interesting, to be able to have a bully pulpit. You, you know, readers don't have to read you if they don't want you. Right. But uh, a lot of them did. And so that was really, really fun. And you continue, are you still writing that column? No, I stopped that a few years ago, but I, but I continued writing for about eight years after I uh, left the publishing job. And one of the most fun columns to write was right after I turned 65. Through the magic of target marketing, on my birthday, I got this pack uh, encased in cellophane of uh, individual marketing cards for older people. And there was a card there for everything except depends. So I arranged all these cards in the order of uh, <coughs> increasing decrepitude. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was like, Spring, spring things for your feet, magic ears so you don't disturb your partner when you turn the television on the ears up to blasting. Um, the lifts to carry you up and down your stairs and uh, just everything, including... Replacement knees, oh, replacement yeah, hips. Including um, deals on final disposal. So, <laughs> I had so much fun writing that column. It was wonderful. I think the reason... Do you have a copy of it? We I like do. it. Uh, oh, you got to send it to us. Okay. I'd love to see that. Uh, so what, what was your most challenging tasks at Cranes? Well, I think... Uh, I was publisher during some of the golden era of print journalism. There were some years when the editor would come storming in and say, we can't take any more ads. Stop, stop. He said, readers don't want 80 page publications. Stop. That's a wonderful problem to have. Yeah. yeah, it's not the problem today. <laughs> it is not the problem today. And, you know, everybody is downsized and downsized, including Cranes. Um, you know, Cranes now, uh, it, it doesn't carry the amount of uh, news that it once did. It can't because it doesn't have the advertising base to support it. And I, I endured a fair amount of that and had to make staff cuts. And that's not fun. No. No, no. Uh, so I said, I think it's time to uh, declare victory. And uh, had they uh, gone on, was going online a thing at, uh, before I, you left? Going they, online. Oh, yes. Oh, sure. We were developing, putting out their digital products. We have daily daily news alerts. 
general news by industry. It's just, you know, everybody worked hard to try to. And for a while, we had faxes. We had daily faxes five days a week by subscription, big subscription. Uh, in politics, that one was called the Insider, one page, and then Pulse, which covered healthcare. And while they lasted, those were those were nice little money makers. So, um, as we uh, get toward the end of the hour, I'd like you to uh, give your perspectives on uh, a variety of things. One, you can talk a little bit about this difficult uh, political situation that we're in. I recall that when we worked uh, at the house, uh, people were pretty collegial um, and uh, they, they had friends on both sides of the aisle. Um, now that seems to be uh, more difficult. Um, how do we get out of this? You know, I don't know. It's really a toxic. And <coughs> I'm sorry. I think it seems a little bit less at the state and local level, actually. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a toxic environment. And uh, it wasn't that way when we were there. You're absolutely right. It kind of came in with Newt Gingrich, and it's only gotten worse with the Tea Party and then Donald Trump. Um, and it breaks my heart because it was, it, it, it was a place that was interesting to work on. When I, um, when I worked for the House Budget Committee, coming off of the subcommittee, one of the uh, people, members of Congress who had been both and were on the House Ways and Means Committee and had been on the subcommittee was a congressman from the Rochester area called Barber Conable. Mr. Conable was a wonderful guy. He was yeah. sensible and reasonable and there was nothing not to like about him. And so little Miss nosy here what I was following what was going on in the Ways and Means Committee and if I saw something I didn't like gathering steam I'd call Mr. Conable and he'd say hello Alaire what's up and I'd say well you know there's some, some some stuff at work at the Ways and Means Committee that bothers me I wrote a little analysis of what I think is wrong about it he'd say send it right over. So I'd hang up and I'd write the analysis <laughs> and send it right over. And he, he would use that. He was He'd a Republican or a Democrat? He was a Republican. A Republican, yeah. yeah. Read it and well, he, you he know, uh, right now uh, I uh, just wrote a a proposed amendment to the National Apprenticeship Act that uh, we're going to try to get a, a senator to incorporate that, uh, well, otherwise uh, it's more of a status quo act and the amendment would make a bit of a reform. So 
I don't know whether that will work, but somebody's still at it here. <laughs> what are you working on these days? I'm on a number of boards. And um, in addition to reading uh, constantly, uh, I am enjoying those boards. For I just got off of the Boy Scout board. I was on that board for 20 years and was the first woman ever to be president of the New York City Scouts. And I really, uh, I really admired the organization and pushed for the needed changes regarding gay scouts and gay leaders. Um, so I finally thought I've grown long in the tooth there and got off. <coughs> but I'm on the board of uh, Emerita uh, at Lincoln Center. I'm on the board of New York City Ballet, <clears throat> a dance organization called Gibney, the Citizens Budget Commission. I love budget. <laughs> so nerdy. I love it. Um, and those keep me pretty busy. Now, when were you on were you on the TIAA board or correct? I was on the, the board of overseers. Ah. That's a non-fiduciary board. We don't uh, we don't make the policy for TIAA or CREF, but it's a wonderful organization. And most of my time I served with um, oh bum bum Karen, Roger Ferguson. Ferguson. Oh, yeah. during Ferguson. As CEO, yeah. He, he but just, I he just I resigned. There, yeah, during. John Biggs a little bit and a little uh -huh. bit for um, Herb Allison. But I oh boy, those three. Them. Well, now there's a woman. Yes, and I don't. I never met her. No, I haven't either. But she's well, uh, young, relatively. I think well, Alaire, um, I now that you've left your position as. Uh, on the board of the Boy Scouts, I think it's time for you to join uh, our board on Apprenticeships for America. That will be, uh, we're looking for someone of your talents to be on our advisory board. And the project will involve a good deal of advocacy of the type that I'm sure you can advise us well about. That, that's your reward for this, doing <laughs> this interview. It's My top. My cup runneth over. Yep. <laughs> it's an illustration of the principle that no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> I, I'm aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Alaire, it's been, it's been wonderful to catch up and to uh, hear these great stories over the years. And uh, we really appreciate your joining us on. It was wonderful. You came, you came through with a lot of good stories. Oh, thank you. You know, I've been blessed. I, I, I am so grateful to have had a, a, the career that I have had to have been able to work with so many people like Bob, uh, who, who just helped lead the way for fine work. And, and it's, it's been a very interesting and fascinating time. Sounds that way. And we all hope we can keep our democracy and um, we all need to do our part in that. Yes, we do. Well, we, we have a phrase when uh, 
we sign off and that's uh, we we sign for. off by saying zai gesund which means <laughs> in, that's yiddish in new york you must have come across that expression oh. someplace uh and it means goodbye be well be well thank zai you gesund. very much Hilaire. Bye, thank you very bye. much <laughs> bye <laughs>